Jacob, appreciate it. Uh, if in the event that you're visiting with us, or uh, in the event that the contents of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, caught you off guard, uh, parents, I want to let you know, actually this Sunday is the first Sunday that our 11 o'clock elementary class is back in session. So I'm going to pray to get us started. And if during that time, just using your parental discretion, you want to you walk your elementary students next door, that class is on the third floor. So you can check in right inside the main doors and... Um, uh, they'll show you how to get there. I'm okay if your kids are in here uh, while we talk, but obviously that's, that's for you parents. So let me pray, and uh, we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We, we come as needy kids. Um, sometimes we think about church, and we go thinking we're going to give something, but the reality is we're just super needy kids. And so we come again, Dad, with our hands raised up to you and open, knowing that you give good gifts, you delight in giving good gifts to your kids, and the beauty is you give us what we need, not necessarily what our hearts want. Hopefully, increasingly, we want the things that we need, but our hearts are pretty jacked up, and so we thank you that you give us, you give us what we need. And so we know you're going to give us what we need this morning. You've already given us what we need through Jesus, and you're going to give it afresh again today. And uh, Jesus, we pray that you would be the hero of our time together, that we would look to you and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in the same way that you did when you brought our hearts to life initially, that you would bring our hearts again uh, to life again this morning through your word, and that you would give us humble hearts to hear and respond to the voice of our Father. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So our series theme for our journey through 1 Corinthians is gospel-formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. We use that word family. We've got to be reminded, hey, we're not just any old family. We are God's family. We represent God, our Father, here in Okinawa. We are united around Jesus. Lots of other secondary things fall to the background. We're not going to divide over those while we're united around Jesus. We exist as the Father's family to have a culture of light in a culture of death, to have a culture of life in, I'm sorry, a culture of light in a culture of darkness and a culture of life in a culture of death. We exist to be practitioners of justice and mercy and advocates of justice and mercy in a systemically unjust world and a savagely merciless world. We exist for our Father's fame ultimately, not for our own fame, and we exist for the good of our neighbors. That, guys, we, we don't exist for our own good. Today, what we're going to see in the text is this. Becoming who we are, becoming that kind of family, happens as our gospel identity compels us to run toward family conflict resolution, family in here family, and away from sexual immorality. To say it a different way, we will be a united family in a fractured city only as we run toward family conflict resolution and as a family, we run away from sexual immorality. So we are a running family. We run toward conflict resolution. And as a family, we run away from sexual immorality. We'll see the chapter break down in three sections, roughly. Uh, first, we're going to start right in the middle, verses 9 to 11. What we'll see is that we are compelled by our gospel identity to become who we are. So that's kind of the, the groundwork. 
And then on either side of that conversation, we'll see the two problems. Uh, Verses 1 to 8, we'll learn about running toward family conflict resolution. And then in the last third or last half of the chapter, we'll learn about running away from sexual immorality. So let's start uh, right there in verses 9 to 11, learning about how we are compelled by our gospel identity, or I should say the gospel will motivate or compel or give give life to our hearts to become who we are this united family in a fractured city. So as we already saw, Jacob read for us, and we just recapped, there are two family problems addressed in this chapter, and right in between the two, Paul uh, discusses our gospel identity for a moment. He basically rehearses what the Father says over us um, in response to these two problems. And guys, that's important for us to, to remember as a family There are problems in my own life, and we have problems in our lives as a family. The antidote to all of those problems is as our father's kids sitting down and submitting ourselves to his voice, allowing him to speak over us, and responding to uh, exactly what he has to say as our father. That is always the antidote. And so here Paul goes in verse 9, he asks them a question. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, normally when we see that word unrighteous, who are we thinking about? People outside the family, right? People in the neighborhood. But as uh, Jacob, did you go already? Yeah, I think he was here in the first hour, so he's next door now. Thanks for invoking Kanye, um, because he's right. This is family business. Um, Kanye exegeted this text perfectly. Like, we are not talking about the people outside. This is Paul sitting down with the family in the living room, having a family chat. And so the unrighteous that he's talking about are present in the family gathering. And he says, hey, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's not talking about outsiders, guys. This is a family talk. And Paul says, listen, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or he would say it this way. He's saying they're not actually in the family. There are some people in the living room right now who are not actually in the family. Now, it's true, the word unrighteous could actually be referring to somebody who has no profession of faith in Jesus. Like, they're just full-on rebel, running hard and fast from God, doing them, whatever. Like, all right, we got that. We understand that, that definition of unrighteous. But what Paul's doing here is he's telling us that it's also possible to be unrighteous when we have a profession of faith in Jesus absent a practice of submitting to him in all of life or practice a pattern in life where I'm daily putting my rebel tendencies to death. I no longer have the authority. Like I have rejected authority over my own life. I've rejected living for myself. I'm putting that to death. I still have those tendencies, but I'm, I'm striving daily to submit to Jesus. So Paul's saying an unrighteous person is a person in the family who has a profession of faith in Jesus but no pattern or practice of following him. They're empty words. Or as you Texans would say, all hat and no cattle. I've heard. I've never really been to Texas, but that's what I've heard. All hat, no cattle. So the unrighteous, Paul would say, are those whose lives are shaped more by the culture. And we can't make the culture the bad guy all the time, so let's say it this way. The unrighteous are those whose lives are shaped more by their rebel tendencies in their heart rather than having a life that's shaped by the Father's voice. That's what he's saying. And then he says, family, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. 
We're deceived because we usually think of the unrighteous as out there and the righteous is in here. He says, don't be deceived. And the problem is they were deceived. We're going to see that. I mean, these people had a steady diet of sermons, podcasts, and devotionals from Paul himself, from Paul and other apostles, and they were still deceived in their view of themselves. And we sit here and we're like, that that will not happen to me. Like, I'm good. There's no way I would be deceived like that. But this is Paul's way as our older brother sitting us down in the living room and reminding us that on any given day, if our Father's voice is not the defining voice in my life, I will be deceived by another voice. Now, I may be deceived by another voice, but I will be deceived by another voice. So if my dad's voice is not the defining voice in my life, I will be deceived by another voice. Maybe my own. I mean, we know what the Bible says about my own heart, right? What's it say? Deceitful, right? It, my heart lies to me all the time. I don't know about you. Well, I do because the Bible says that it does. So like, our hearts lie to us all the time. All the time. Basically, what Paul's saying is this. If there is any voice louder than my dad's in my life, I'm going to be deceived. We could say it this way. Deception is only ever just a decibel away. Deception is a decibel away, whichever voice is louder. So Paul says again, don't be deceived, guys. Those who have a practice or a pattern of living out their rebel tendencies, even with a profession of faith, are deceived. And then he kind of walks through some of those practices or those patterns. And again, listen, we're not talking about perfection. No Christian is perfect. Jesus is the only perfect son. We're made right or declared right because of his perfection on our behalf. But when he changes our hearts and we see those rebel tendencies by his help, through the Spirit's help, we start putting those things to death. And so there's an increasing pattern of submitting to Jesus. An unrighteous person, however, has an increasing pattern of of living to themselves. And Paul gives a a list here. It's not exhaustive, but it's a good list. The first pattern of life that he lists is sexual immorality. We learned last week that's all sexual expression or sexual sexual intimacy outside of a heterosexual marriage. Talks about idolatry. That's anything in God's place. And given the context in this list, he's probably talking about sex as idolatry, whether that's my identity or my expression or just following my desires. Talks about adultery, that's unfaithfulness in marriage, or giving myself sexually or emotionally to someone other than my spouse. He talks about homosexuality. Uh, There are two terms here used in the Greek. We really only see one in the English, uh, homosexuality. And uh, together these terms, describe. it's kind of a categorical expression of same-sex intercourse or a pursuit towards a, like the the pattern of an expression of same-sex identity. And, and I know it says men in the text, but so often, just listen, culturally in the New Testament, very often when you see that categorical statement, you would see it in a greeting like, hey, I greet all the brothers at the church, wherever. And he's just saying, I greet, what the language would say is the brothers and sisters. It's categorical. I, I greet you all. So this is not exclusive to men here. It's just a categorical way of speaking of homosexual identity or expression. Theft, he talks about theft, taking what isn't mine, stuff, money, or time. Greed gain or advancement, self-promotion as my motive, especially at cost to others, drunkenness, living under the influence of alcohol or any substance instead of uh, living under the influence of the Spirit. Talks about reviling, so that would be slandering, denigrating character, impugning motive. That would be in person. I checked with Paul. He said online too, also online, and he said yes, memes count. 
memes count. Swindling, that would be objectifying people for personal gain kind of in an underhanded way. Taking advantage of people that you maybe have influence over, authority over, intellectual prowess over, and so you use them uh, rather than loving them as image bearers of God, you use them for your personal gain. So again, Paul repeats himself. He says, if there's a practice or pattern of these things, even if they have a profession of faith in Jesus, they are unrighteous and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or again, as, he, as he, he, we could restate it this way, it's a frank family conversation in the living room. There are some in the living room who are not part of the family. They're not in the will. They're not written into the will. And their pattern of life reveals that. So profession is meaningless if any of these are ongoing embraced patterns of life. And Paul says, such were some of you guys. This was your identity. This was, your orient- this was the orientation of your heart. So no deception, guys. The gospel gives us full freedom to say, that was me. I was on the outside looking in. Jesus rescued me and adopted me into the family. But I was on the outside and I belong outside. Now again, back to the list. Our rebellion is expressed uniquely by by each person in here. So maybe your particular rebel tendency was not on the list. Doesn't get you off the hook. Like there are plenty of other lists in the New Testament, but again, it's just used as an example. It's not exhaustive, and so Paul's point is still the same. We all were rebels who needed rescue, and we still have these rebel tendencies that need to be put to death. And the good news of the gospel is, he says, but you were, this was you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified through the work of the Father in sending the Son and through the work of, of the Spirit in our lives. So even though this was us, we've been washed, meaning I carried nothing but guilt and shame around and I had to hide in my guilt and shame. But the Father washes me through the work of the Son. I don't have to live enslaved to guilt and shame. I don't have to hide. Guys, no hiding before the Father and no hiding in this family. We can be honest with each other. I've also been sanctified. That means set apart. I've been given a new identity. I've been adopted into the family, not because of anything I did. I was a rebel, but because of what Jesus did. And this truth of the gospel frees us up to realize I don't have to perform. I didn't have to perform to get into the family, and I don't have to perform to stay in the family. It's not about my performance. It's about Jesus' performance in my place. And I've been justified, meaning I've been declared right. I have a new heart orientation. I'm made new. So I don't have to pretend. I don't have to, be, I don't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. Yes, that is who I was. And yes, the gospel freezes up, to be honest. I've got many rebel tendencies remaining, but this is who I am. I don't have to pretend. Yeah, I've got my rebel tendencies, but I am washed, I am sanctified, adopted in, and I am justified. I'm made right with the Father. So we have a new identity, new family, new orientation. I am my Father's son. You are your Father's daughter. You are loved, you are accepted, and you are fully affirmed and forever kept in Jesus. And that voice from our Father disrupts and dismantles our our deception. And we see it leads to this statement by Paul in verses 19 and 20. He says, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. I belong to my dad. I exist for his fame. And I exist for the good of others. And so he says, I will glorify God in my body or in all of life. And so we see Paul using our gospel identity to motivate us. It compels us to become who we are. to, To live into the reality of who our Father says that we are. And that is exactly what makes the culture of our family beautiful and attractive and light and full of life and justice and merciful. The gospel alone does that for us. But rather than being shaped and compelled by the, gospel's ident- the gospel identity, our Father's voice, 
this church in Corinth was still much more shaped by the culture or their rebel tendencies. And in very two, uh, two very real areas, we saw it. Conflict with the family was escalating to the point of legal action. And sexual immorality, rather than submitting to Jesus and His good design, they were embracing the cultural norm. So let's, let's look at that first problem. The problem of conflict resolution. And what we're going to see is our dad wants us to run together toward family conflict resolution. And as we listen to his voice, we will. But if we're not listening to his voice and we're deceived, we will not. We will sidestep conflict resolution. We'll sidestep conflict. It'll escalate. And we will divide as a family and go public. All right, running together toward family conflict resolution. Because they were deceived and not listening to their dad's voice, they were running away from handling family business within the family. They were going super public with this. So Paul says they were taking each other to court. And so back then, court would have been held right in the main shopping district of the city. We don't really have malls anymore, but for me growing up in the 80s, 90s, like a mall, like justice would have been handled at the mall, right? Um, it would have been very public. So just to contextualize it for us, if it was this way now, uh, the courts would be in the center of the food court on Kadena. Like all your judicial stuff that you guys handle for your, all that stuff, all the drama would play out. And look, we laugh, but you know where you'd be. You would be slamming a piece of Anthony's pizza, just sitting there like you're watching an episode of Judge Judy. Like play it again, play it again. That's how public it was. It was embarrassing. I grew up in a trailer park during my teen years. I grew up in a trailer park, Dusty Roads of Northeastern uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, look, trailer parks have a lot of stereotypes. Some of them earned, some of them not. Uh, Most of them earned. And uh, one of those was just kind of like the drama in the neighborhood. You knew which house, you just knew where the drama was going to spill out of the house and into the street. And as a young kid in the in the park, like you couldn't help but ride your bicycle at least with an earshot, like to see it happen because it was it was like captivating but cringeworthy and embarrassing and just a lot of other things but it was this powerful moment that was happening but there was a sense of shame that was over all of it because the, the in your mind even as a kid you're like I know that should be playing out behind those walls like they're embarrassing each other they're they're slandering their family name and that, that really you even know it as a kid like it just belongs inside guys the church in Corinth was like that that double wide in the trailer park where the family drama was fill, spilling out into the, the streets and they were embarrassing members of the family and they were denigrating the father's name and they were, they were, man, the gospel was getting trampled in the streets. So what kind of conflict are we talking about here? And we see in verses two and three, Paul's really talking about the everyday stuff of life. Uh, he's even talking about civil cases. The language in the passage would lead us to believe he's talking about uh, civil cases that very well could be taken to court. Stuff like contracts, uh, fraud within the family, legal possession. Um, I mean, we would have opportunities. Uh, I mean, that could, happen, that could happen today, and it happens in the lives of, of churches all the time. So they're, they're conducting business. They feel like they've been slighted, and rather than dealing with it in the family, uh, they take it public, right? Like stuff with um, their essential oils or their herbal life or their young livings just getting out of control and rather than just dealing with it in the family they're like now we're going to we're going to court on this one it's embarrassing let's make this clear paul was not talking about criminal situations here he's not um he's not talking about criminal situations at all in fact if you were to read in romans 13 you know paul's argument that the state exists 
to uh, as God has appointed the state with, with several roles, and one of those is to execute judge, uh, justice in cases of, of criminal law. So listen, only cults and unhealthy churches deny or dismiss allegations of criminal conduct. Let's, let's take one very, sadly, very common uh, for our own culture and our own generation, allegations of sexual abuse. Only a gospel-deficient church would deny, dismiss, or just sweep it under the rug. Only a cult would say, oh, we deal with that kind of thing in-house and we're not going to go outside. A healthy church informed by the gospel would take allegations of sexual abuse or other criminal behavior seriously and immediately report no questions to the proper authorities appointed over us. So let's be clear with that. But Paul's not talking about criminal situations. He's just he's talking about the everyday stuff of life and minor civil cases. But the problem here is they're taking each other to court over matters that quite honestly should have been resolved and reconciled within the family. And so Paul writes and says in verse 5, how dare you? How dare you? He says, I say this to your shame. Now remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Our father does not traffic in guilt and shame for the family. And that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not shaming them. What he's saying is, in having to bring this up, you guys have some really shameful behavior going on here. So I'm saying this, and it's to your, to your shame. How dare you do this to our father's family? It's, it's shameful first in fact, because they are family. Paul uses the, the, the title brothers like four times in this paragraph as a reminder to them that, man, you guys, you guys are taking your, your brother and your sister into a public space and you are slandering their name rather than going to them face to face and working it out there or asking for the help of the church family to resolve it out. You are going on social media and denigrating Christians who are going to vote for Trump or Christians who are going to vote for Biden or fill in the blank, whatever the drama is that needs to be worked out in the family. You're going public and you're shaming your brothers and sisters in the family. And in so doing, you're shaming your dad. You're shaming the culture of this family in front of everybody. So they're family. And in verse 1, he says, why would you subject your family members to potentially un an unjust legal, legal system? Why would you even do that? It was an unjust system in Corinth. And guys, there is injustice in our legal system too. You're not guaranteed to get an impartial judge. You're not guaranteed to get somebody that's going to interpret the law the way it should be interpreted. You, in taking a family member to court, you could be subjecting a brother or a sister to injustice in the legal system. And in verse 4, he just asks the question, why would you even take your family business to those outside the family? Why would you leave the double wide and go out into the street and just allow your brother or sister to be absolutely embarrassed? Why would you do that? And when we do, we're being just like the culture because that's what our culture does. We go public, we shame, we guilt, we slander. we dis like That's what our culture does. But he's saying we exist to be a counterculture. We handle family business different. We handle it in the family. Our Father wants us to run toward family conflict resolution, not sidestep it and not be passive-aggressive and go public. And so he says, listen guys, here's my argument for this. Verse 2, consider our family's future. He says, someday we're going to judge the world. And someday God is going to use us to judge angels. Now, I don't really know what that means. I know it's future and I know it's not happening yet. I mean, anybody in here judging angels? Okay, good. Tell me your story later because I'm curious. But, uh, and we don't sit in judgment over the world. That's not our lane right now. But in the future, we will be used in this way. So he's saying it's already part of our family DNA. Like we have the capacity. 
We will be doing this in the future. Consider our family's competencies and collective wisdom. Uh, through the Spirit, God has given so many wise and competent people to our family. And considering those two realities, here are three questions to consider from the text. Second half of verse 2, are you, family, incompetent to try trivial cases? No. Man, most of you try trivial cases professionally all week long. That's what you do for work. 60% of you resolve trivial cases 24-7 as moms. That's your life. You're like, yes, I adjudicate, I adjudicate trivial junk all the time. I'm a mom, right? So he's saying, are we incompetent to try this kind of stuff in the family? That's no, ludicrous. Like we can do this. We do it in every other sphere of life. Why don't we bring that same thing to bear on the, on the life of our family? He says it again in verse 3, are we able to judge the every, everyday stuff of life? Of course. Again, exhibit A, moms. Like, look at all the moms in the room. If we would just sit, submit ourselves to the wise and godly moms in our family, we would be a culture of life and all of our problems could be adjudicated in a Christ-honoring way and a life-giving way. In verse 5, second half of verse 5, he says, isn't there anyone among you wise enough to settle a dispute? Yeah, of course there are. Look, for me personally, I have sat down at a table with an older, wiser brother in our family when, uh, this was years ago and this family's gone and we would, have the, we would talk about this publicly together now, so I'm not saying anything I wouldn't say to them. We had a, we had a kind of a, it wasn't a disagreement so much as misunderstandings and hurt feelings and so our relationship had really suffered. We tried reconciling together. We thought we did it and stuff just kind of lingered. And so I sat down with one of my older, wiser brothers in the family. I mean, we did, me and this other couple, and we both kind of shared our, our peace, and then he was in the middle. He mediated it and facilitated some reconciliation for that conversation. That's exactly what we're talking about, family culture. So we have that in our culture, check. We've got the family competencies, check. So Paul's saying, we can do this if we are willing to submit to it, but that's not the problem. The problem's our desire. Most of us don't want this. We don't want that. And guys, that just stands as evidence that our hearts are more shaped by the culture or our rebel tendencies than they're actually shaped by the gospel. Because still, he says, brother goes to the law against brother in very public ways. They're sidestepping this thing in the family, and then they're going public and slandering in the courts. And maybe more contextually for us, very few of you are taking each other, you're not going to courts, so like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. We take each other to, in, to the court of public opinion all the time. It's how we use our social media. And it can be very passive aggressive, but guys, we do this. And what Paul's argument is, he's saying, guys, family, once you're at this point, no matter who wins the case, the family loses. The father loses, the gospel loses, the winner loses, the loser loses, everyone loses, the public loses, our witness is ruined. We're the family in the trailer park, in the streets, and the family name is slandered, and the gospel's an absolute joke. Like you're, you're telling me the gospel, like reconciliation, that's what the gospel's about? Are you serious right now? Like you're kidding me. You guys say that you can be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other? Look at you. Your business is just all over social media and all over the streets. Everybody loses. This happened not too long ago. I grew up, um, podcasts weren't a thing when I was a kid because I'm old now, but we had radio, radio and a radio preacher, James McDonald. Everybody, anybody ever heard of James McDonald? So I grew up under his teaching. I used it as a youth pastor. I use it like in my college ministry and stuff. Very influential. He planted the church. It's in Chicago, Harvest Bible Chapel. 
And not just a few years ago, they had some, some family drama that just spilled out into the streets. And um, they did not, they could have, but they didn't deal with it in-house. And what made it worse was several years back, James had befriended this radio personality in the city and they had become friends. He'd become a Christian. He was part of the church. And in all of this falling out, he still had his radio show and he was syndicated like nationally. I actually remember listening to him as a kid in the Marine Corps. Uh, his radio name was Man Cow. And um, anyway, so he would, he would get on AFN and stuff. And so it became this very public conversation that was played out on the radio, and it was just flooding the streets of Chicago through blogs and um, newspapers. So guess who won? Nobody won. The church lost. McDonald lost. Mancal lost. Chicago lost. The gospel lost. Everybody lost. The father lost. It's sad. He wants us to settle our disputes within the family. We run to conflict resolution at the first hint. We have conversations with each other, and if that doesn't work out, we, we appeal to the community for help, our family. And if that doesn't work, we submit ourselves to more formal church counsel with, with our pastors, or our missional community leaders. And then check it out. If that still doesn't work, guess what this passage, guess what Paul says we do then? Guess what he says? You ready for this one? Because this is more countercultural than anything else I've said so far. I, I mean, anything he said. We concede. We concede. If you're right, you concede. You don't fight to win, you concede. We practice a non-retaliatory ethic as a family. That means we surrender our rights. We don't have to be publicly vindicated. We don't have to win. We concede. Jesus says something like that in Matthew 5.40. He said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, what do you do? Sue them? What do you do? You let them have your cloak as well. Non-retaliatory. That's what Paul says in verse 7. He asks two questions. He's like, guys, given the weight of all of this, like given everything that's at stake, why not rather suffer wrong? And he asks again, why not rather be defrauded? Do you hear what he's asking you to do? Surrender your rights. Surrender the opportunity to be vindicated in the court of public opinion concede for the father's reputation so that our family won't be divided for the good of the family and for the good of the neighborhood uh, because they get a clearer picture of the gospel in real life and for the good of the gospel we concede guys that is that's crazy to us right i mean that's absolutely countercultural. Um, we are discipled by the culture to win and be proven right at any cost it doesn't matter what relationship cost is and so this is an indicator that we are more shaped by the culture and our own rebel tendencies than by, than by our dad's voice. Guys, in verse 9, too, I mean, Paul kind of connects this. If the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, what will, the, what will happen to the righteous? Like the flip side, right? They inherit the kingdom of God. So if that's true and you're in the family, you are, quote, righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. You're in the family. Can we not sustain some personal loss in this life given the reality that you are in line to inherit the kingdom of God from your dad? It's okay if we lose. It's okay if we lose in this lifetime. It's okay. It's okay. But they were deceived, and they, they, so they wronged and they defrauded their own brothers. And it was a sad story in Corinth. And it was a sad story in Chicago. And it's a sad story in many divided churches. But guys, that sad story does not have to be our story. Because if we are willing, we can humbly and graciously run toward conflict resolution at the first hint 
for God's fame and the good of others. So we are a family that runs toward family conflict resolution within the family and with the help of the family. All right, one more run that we need to talk about. So we've talked about running towards that conflict resolution, conceding when necessary for the good of the family, for our Father's fame. Paul's now going to talk about running, but in a different direction. We need to run towards conflict resolution and run away as a family from sexual immorality. So the problem in Corinth was that their sexual ethic and expression were shaped, again, more by the culture, more by their rebel tendencies, and not the Father's voice. So they were deceived. They had professed allegiance to Jesus without submitting to Jesus sexually. Or we could say it this way. They had a profession of faith in Jesus with an accompanying pursuit of porn. Uh, we learned last week this term sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia, meaning all it means is sexual expression or intimacy outside of heterosexual marriage. But even when I say that word out loud, we know exactly what words in our own language are derived from that word. Um, porn, pornography. Some would read passages like this and argue, man, John, like, come on, this is embarrassing. Passages like this only demonstrate how backwards and repressive Christians are toward sex. And I would say to that, no, absolutely not. Passages like this only serve to demonstrate how beautiful, sacred, and special sexual intimacy and expression are and how absolutely life-giving they are when expressed according to our Father's plan. But it's also our Father's way of saying, man, I've given you this beautiful gift and it is so life-giving in, in marriage. But when it is expressed outside of those good boundaries I've set up for you, it is not life-giving. It will leave a legacy of shame and guilt and suffering. It's destructive. Now, you may have been surprised as, as Jacob read for us, sexual immorality, like did this surprise you? Like uh, He just read from a book of the Bible and a letter to a church full of professed Christians, and what did he have to tell them to stop doing? Stop going to the whorehouse. Like, stop visiting prostitutes. That's what he had to say. They're like, holy cow. Like, I thought I'd been in some churches that were really jacked up. That's the letter he had to write. So their sexual immorality was expressed through the practice of visiting prostitutes. But guys... That is something that professed Christians do today all the time. We saw this from last week. This, this study uh, done by Barna said 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. And it's not just picking on men. They went on to say that of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, that, so that's us for the most part, 76% actively search for porn daily, weekly. And you're like, no, John, that's not the same. Like he's talking about physically visiting prostitutes. Look, when we use porn, we pay for sex directly or indirectly. It may be directly because some of you may actually have a paid subscription or you went out and purchased a product. So you have, you have, you have been the purchaser, you have paid. But even if not, it's still an indirect expense for that sex. You're still paying your cell phone bill. You're still paying your internet bill. Like You are paying for goods and services to provide you with this sexual experience. So whether it's direct or indirect, when we use porn, we pay for sex. So there is still a pimp, there is still a prostitute, and there is still a purchaser. And you are the purchaser. 
And Paul would say, don't be deceived. Just because you're not, look, we're not going to the same house address that they went to in Corinth, obviously, but we are still walking ourselves to an address. It's just now our addresses start with www, but it is still an address. We justify or we diminish or we deny or we downplay our use of porn. It's not the same or we ignore it. It's, it's not like that, John. But you know what? They did the same thing. They justified. And so Paul, for the rest of the chapter, is going to go after their justifications. And he does it. Notice in verse 12, a couple of the words are in quotes. You see that? Verse 12. So what he's doing is he's saying, you guys say that all things are lawful for me. That's what he's saying. He's, he's quoting them. Because yeah, basically they're using their cultural ethic to defend their sexual expression. So they would say, uh, man, all things are lawful for me. And Paul repeats that two times. Now, we, we, we don't say that. We don't ever use that vocabulary to justify ourselves. We say stuff more along the lines of, man, if, if, I, can, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I want to, then I can do it as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. I have the freedom to, I, I can do this, right? We... Um, um, my spouse is not giving herself to me, or she doesn't satisfy me. I, you know, I don't want to, I would really hurt her and tell her that she wasn't satisfied. Like, so it, it, God would understand. Like, I've got to have an outlet somewhere. I, I've got to have some healthy expression. It's, it's, it's lawful for me. It's okay. So we, we kind of serve as our own lawyer to build this case that justifies why we're doing what we're doing. I can if I want. It's lawful for me. So Paul gives two responses to them on this one. He says, um, yeah, but it's not helpful to you. Now, he's not conceding that it's lawful. Don't, don't, let, don't, don't be fooled here. Paul's not conceding anything. He's basically saying, look, dog, even if it's lawful for you, that's what he's saying, even if you've persuaded yourself that you have the freedom to do this, it's still not helpful. It's still not morally right or beautiful. It's still not good for you. It's still not life-giving. It's definitely not life-giving for the person you're using, which, guys, just again, we're not going here today, but study after study just shows a direct link between porn consumption and human trafficking. And if anything is all the rage in our culture right now, it's fighting human trafficking. Meanwhile, we set records in porn consumption. Get that hypocrisy out of here. Come on. It's not helpful. It's not life-giving. It's not morally right or beautiful. And then he says, even if, even if it's lawful, look, I don't want you to be dominated by anything. That would be Paul's way of saying, look, you don't, you don't use a prostitute. Or in our case, look, I get it. We're not going to see one in person, but on, on the internet we are. So Paul would say to us, you don't use porn. You think you do, and you think you use it when you want, and you can turn it on and turn it off, and it, you use it for your good, but you don't use it. It uses you. You don't own it. It owns you. You are its slave. It doesn't exist to be your servant to make you feel good. You think it does. It owns you and it's your slave and it is killing your soul. You're dominated by it. You're dominated by it in your mind. Guys, again, the science, oh my goodness, just the more we learn about our brains and this particular sin and the neural pathways and just on and on and again, this is not a science lecture, but man, we can pick up the books and read all about it. We are owned by this particular sin. It's killing us in our mind and in our emotions and our spirit. Secondly, they would say in verse 13, they say, it sounds goofy to us, but they're like, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food. That's their way of saying, I'm created with this appetite. Like, obviously, that's why I have it. So it's just natural and right. For, I'm, just do, like, I'm, just, I'm just doing what God made me to do. Um, 
we would say something more along the lines of, uh, you know, if I could have what I want, I would be satisfied. Like, clearly I've been given this appetite, so it's, it's got to be right, because that's how the culture disciples us. Listen to your body, listen to your appetites, satisfy your appetites, and life will follow. That's how we're discipled. Uh, the gospel would disciple us in the other direction to say, you got to put those things to, to death, right? So, if I could have what I want, and if I could have it now, if I could satisfy this appetite, I would be good. And we would say, man, my body is meant to find fulfillment through sexual... I mean, we hear this all the time. We as people will find fulfillment through sexual exploration, sexual freedom, and sexual identity. If I can just do whatever I want to do sexually, I'm good. I'll be happy. I'll be content. That's the deception that we've, we've bought. And, and quite honestly, that our hearts tell us every day. Plus, did you see they invoke YOLO in the text? Could you put verse 13 back up? Uh, I think it's for 13. Yeah, there should be, sorry, you're not looking at the same TV I am. There should be quotes um, that extend right here. That should be included in their quote because they're basically saying, these are my appetites, I got to fulfill them. And then they're saying, look, the bottom line is God's going to destroy my appetites and my stomach eventually. I only live once. So now is the season where... Um, God must clearly design for me or mean for me to use these appetites. I only live once. Well, guys, Paul would have us understand that, yes, sex is created to be awesome. And we'll see that uh, again just uh, next week when we go into chapter 7, uh, talking a lot about marriage and our sexuality. Sex is created to be awesome, but it's awesome. It's not ultimate. It won't satisfy your soul. No matter how good and right and beautiful your sexual encounters are within marriage, you'll be done and your soul will still want something different and something more. It doesn't ever ultimately satisfy no matter how beautiful it is. Ever. The problem is, there's this lie, right, that porn gives us or sexual immorality gives us that, um, man, I will give you that satisfaction you want. Like if you follow me, if you come to me, I will give you exactly what you want and you will be satisfied. But man, if you, if, especially if you read Proverbs, first five, six, seven, eight chapters of Proverbs and, and here in this passage, porn will promise satisfaction, but it will steal your soul. And that's why Paul says in verse uh, 13, he says, the body is made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's saying Jesus alone will give ultimate satisfaction to your soul. Yes, you have a beautiful sexuality about you. Yes, it's a gift from God. But that's not given to you so that you can find your truest and best and fullest self. It's not. You will find exactly what your heart needs and longs for in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus, he will satisfy your soul. Porn will lie to you and offer the same satisfaction, but it will steal your soul. And by the way, no YOLO. Did you see? We got to just kind of kick that phrase to the curb, guys, because it's not true. Do you know that? Look at verse 14. Um, what's he say? God will raise you up in the same way he rose Jesus up, which, by the way, was bodily. Jesus rose with the same body. The body you have now has not been given to you to abuse and discard as if there are no consequences. He will raise your body up again. You don't just live once. And the greatest fulfillment is not in this lifetime. It is in the next. It's in the next. So Paul plays a little defense. He kind of pushes back on their maxims. But now he's going to go on offense and just bring kind of some hard-hitting gospel at them. And, and uh, look at verse 15. We'll move through these quickly. He says, guys, look, i got to tell you this anyway. Your body is a member of Christ. 
Don't you know this, fam? Your body is a member of Christ. Now, he's not being figurative, guys. He's being as literal as he can be. Here's what he's saying. Your limbs and your sex organs are not ultimately yours. They are his. They're not mine. We know that when by faith we believe, there is this mystical union that happens, right? That unites us with Jesus. We're tracking with that. We're outside of Christ. That's a real bad problem. We believe by faith. We're united with Christ. Most of us have ever just thought of that as spiritual. It's just my spirit, just my soul. Guys, Paul's telling us right here, that union is comprehensive. All of me has been united to Jesus. My limbs, my body, my eyes, my mind all belong to Christ. And so then Paul asks these questions. Would you join Christ's arms, legs, and organs to a prostitute? Like, did you see him ask the question in the text? So he's asking a bunch of Christians, would you take Jesus' body to visit a prostitute? And what's the answer? Like, I'm not doing that. Are you doing that? No way. Judas is dead. Like, nobody's doing that. Would you navigate to porn with Jesus' hands? Would you swipe left or right with his fingers? Would you push play? Would you view porn with Christ's eyes? But fam, we are deceived if we don't think we're doing exactly that every time we pursue sexual immorality or pornography for our gratification. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what we're doing. And then in verse, so, so your body is a member of Christ. Then verses 16 and 17, he makes this point. You know, let me summarize it this way. Porn sabotages your union with Christ. He says, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her as it is written, one flesh. So he's appealing back to Genesis and the creation account and Ephesians where Paul talks about marriage. One flesh. So with all of that language, one body, one flesh, the joining, he's talking about an enduring union that is kind of given life in sex, whether it's virtual or in person. And so guys, we have to understand that sex is far more than the joining of two physical bodies. Like we know that. It's far more than a physical act. Sexual expression creates an enduring connection not only for our body, but in our minds, and it is burned into our souls. It's not insignificant. So another phrase of the culture that we like to use, one night stand. There is no such thing as a one night stand. It's enduring. And Paul says, as a Christian, your soul is already united with Christ. Now listen, this is so important. These two unions are incompatible. You cannot be united with Christ and sexual immorality. You cannot be united with Christ and united to porn. You cannot be united to Christ and united to a prostitute. Listen, your union with Jesus will sabotage your enslavement to porn. Or porn will sabotage your union with Jesus, but they will not commingle. Only one of them will be proven true over time. Porn sabotages our union with Jesus. Verse 18, we learn that porn stands alone in its lethality. I don't totally get what Paul is saying, but enough of it is clear that we can, we can understand he is saying that sexual immorality, sexual sin, is worse in some ways than other sins. You're like, John, I thought we didn't rank sins. Well, we don't kind of. I mean, Paul, Paul is very clear in here. It, is, it stands alone. It's worse in some ways than other sin. Look at what he says. He says, every other sin is outside the body. Sexual immorality, in a sense, is a sin against its, 
its own body. It, it stands alone in this lethality. It is, it is, porn is the Carlos Hathcock of the sin world. But you know who that guy is, right? Carlos, famous sniper from Vietnam, something like 93 confirmed kills. Lethal. Not the most lethal, but the most well-known. Just very lethal. Porn is an all-out assault on your body, your mind, your soul, and your emotions. You are not free when you walk away. You can delete cookies and you can clear your browser, but you cannot do the same for your soul. You can't do it. There's no such thing as a casual sexual encounter without ongoing consequences. Not one. Not one. Sexual immorality, porn specifically, any sexual expression outside of our Father's good plan is lethal. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. It will kill you. It is killing you. Carlos is maybe most well known for this event where he, he basically volunteered to crawl through a jungle for what, three days? Some of you guys know history, three days, three nights, something like that. Nobody saw him. Nobody heard him. He got in, he killed the enemy, a high-profile target, and he gets himself back out of the jungle. Guys, porn is the Carlos Hathcock of sin. You may be completely unaware, but it is, it is presently crawling through the grass, unheard, unseen, to take your life. And its aim is to destroy you, and its aim is to destroy your family, and its aim is to destroy the reputation of Jesus in this world. And it is lethal. It will kill you. Two of you will walk into the jungle, and one of you will walk out. And it's not, it's not us. It's the enemy. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, Paul's just, he's just tapping it off. He's like, guys, look, at, at the end of the day, it's not just about you anyway. You are not your own. This is like the biggest pushback against the cultural ethic anyway, because we believe this. We believe I have autonomy. We believe I am my own. We believe we have full freedom sexually to define my identity and define what I like and to do whatever I want and to pursue that to the, the fullest extent possible. Paul says, dog, first of all, you've been bought with a price. Jesus' own life. He owns you. You don't own yourself. Secondly, your body is the temple, or we just use the word home, of the Holy Spirit. So God has personally taken up residence within your body if you are his kid. Um, and so these two truths would lead us to this reality that, man, I exist now not to gratify myself. I ex and, and I won't find joy and satisfaction there. I exist now to glorify God and in glorifying God, I will find the fullest extent of joy and satisfaction anyway. So it's only the Father's voice that dismantles and destroys my deception. And then you see what Paul says to do. This might be a little surprising to us because we're kind of used to getting sermons like stand up and stand strong and fight back and push back and blah, 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 blah. What do you say to do with sexual immorality? Run! Run away. Flee. It says flee. It's a command. It's simple and it's straightforward and it's probably written for most of us dudes. Because I need simple, straightforward, and just to the point. One word. God is really good to me because I'm basically his junior high kid. And dad's like, son, I got, I got one word for you with sexual immorality and porn. You run. You run away. It's, there's an urgency to this. There's a, there's a danger to this. It's a lethal enemy. You keep away and you run. A friend of mine in the church family gave me this, this shirt not too long ago because they know I actually do like to physically run. And it says, I wanted to go jogging, but Proverbs 28.1 uh, says, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. So there's that. <laughs> it's great. So the wicked run when no one's chasing. 
Guys, the righteous run when their dad says run. And the righteous run when there is a lethal enemy, per their dad's voice, chasing them down. The righteous run. So why don't we? Like, why aren't we actually running? Why? Like, we stand still. We're complacent. We think it won't bite me. It won't get me. Can, like, can, I, just, can I just ask you, do you personally have a strategy for running? Like, a real strategy. Like, not hypothetical. This isn't theory. Do you, as your father, son, or daughter, have a strategy for running? And if you do, what is it? It's going to be different for every one of us, but it probably includes stuff about our entertainment options, uh, canceled subscriptions or different subscriptions, phone, like maybe it's okay to have a dumb phone. Uh, my habits, my personal disciplines, the men's group that our, our church has, participating in a fight club. Like who asks you every week how you're doing? Who asks you the hard question? But guys, while all of that is important and we could spend an entire sermon kind of fleshing all of that out, all of that is secondary. The most important running that you will do this morning, like right now while the Father's speaking this truth to us, is to run to Jesus, who himself is the original runner. He ran to us in our place. He ran the race on our behalf that we are failing to run. He ran to our rescue. He ran in our place. Guys, Jesus ran to take the judgment that you deserve for all of your sexual immorality, and he took the judgment to the cross on your behalf. And he ran to give us life. Our hearts will not even have life to fight back and to run if we have not first and most run to Jesus. Guys, what would that look like this morning? I think for all of us, it would look like being willing to be honest with our Father and confess, not only in this area of conflict that we have sinned, but in this area of sexual immorality and porn, that every one of us in this room have something to confess. And we would confess it to our dad, and then encourage, remembering that the gospel sets us free, we would confess it appropriately to somebody else in our family. And then, after confessing, we would rehearse and believe the gospel, remembering that I, I'm washed. I don't have to hide in my guilt and shame. I don't carry it. I'm sanctified. I don't have to perform in my father's family. I can be honest. I'm justified. I'm made right. So I don't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. Yes, this is who I was in my rebel past. And yes, I still struggle with these rebel tendencies as a dude now. No hiding. No performing. The gospel sets us free. So we confess, we believe, and rehearse the gospel. And we ask for help, guys. We are kids, right? We're needy kids. And we need our dad. We need his help. And so we confess our weakness and inability. We ask him for help. And we, we plan our run. We chart our course. And then we actually run together. Like we have to, we have to run. And I have to finish. Um, Grant, if you want to come on, come on up. Grant's one of our pastors. He leads us in worship uh, through music all the time. Um, he's going to do that, but he's also going to lead us in our normal prayer of confession. And family, I just want to invite you. Um, can we just be honest with our dad and confess our sins of sexual immorality? Um, knowing that he will meet us with grace and with life and with renewal and with with restoration.